I, I have been really nervous and anxious over this, which I'm actually embarrassed to say because this is something that's needed. But the fact that I'm having anxiety about having these kind of conversations shows me that I need to have these conversations. I've also been quiet on social media. Part of that is that um, I don't like getting into conversations where it turns into arguments. I'm, I'm also one who can really see both sides of, of stories or of issues and, and it kind of places me in the kind of as the moderator usually. And, and so I find myself torn because I like I understand both sides and it's really hard for me to, um, I don't know, just get into those conversations. And I've had a lot of guilt over that. And I've had a lot of former students reach out to me um, and, and former colleagues and current colleagues and former and current, well, former friends, they're not my friends anymore, but um, people in my life, black people in my life that I've had, I've been talking to them over the past few weeks and I've reached out to them. Um, one of the reasons why I have um, the black people in my life is not because I really was raised among black people, it was because the old school I taught at held the Huntington Prep program, which was an elite basketball program for NBA players. So Andrew Wiggins, some of you guys know, he was my student for three years. So I taught for 10 years a number of these, of these young men who were all seven feet tall and massively athletic and black. And so teaching them gave me a different perspective because as you guys know, as teachers, we, those kids, we call them our kids. We don't call them our students. They become our kids and we start loving them to a, in, a, in a way. And they become like our kids in some way. And when I've talked to these people in, over the last few weeks, what they have said to me um, has really weighed on me and I feel the necessity to speak. And I asked them if they wanted to be invited to this, if they wanted to share it from their mouths. And they said, no, we want you to. Um, we don't want to be just another black voice. We want you to, sometimes a white voice makes more of an impact. So what I'm going to share with you right now is basically a lot of what they told me, and this isn't just my students, this is colleagues and friends, and it's all going to be kind of woven into this. Um, I asked them a series of questions, almost like interview style, and I got their responses. And so I basically asked them, how can I be your ally? Like, what do I need to do? How can we be better? And that's what they responded to. So first off, like the first thing I started off with was what is, what is your definition of allyship or being an ally? And that definition I sent in the first email, I liked, but it's like, you know, it's professional definition. But what it does say is that it's a process. It's a lifelong process of building relationships and trust and consistency among marginalized individuals. And when I asked them, what do you, what would be, what does an ally mean to you? Um, the best definition I got was that ally is a verb. It's not a noun. We need to act. We need to do. Being an ally is, um, is not just, oh, I'm your friend, but I'm willing to do something about it. Um, another thing that they said to me, and this is a direct quote, being an ally to me means that my worth is not a negotiation. If you agree that my worth is not a negotiation, you're already an ally to some extent. And I, I know all of us already feel that. We don't feel like black people's worth is a negotiation or someone else of another race or ethnicity. Um, and so then I was like, okay, so this, you know, we all can agree that we have to be there to listen, learn and educate. We need to talk to them. 
Um, and the other thing they said is you need to be with us now, but you need to be with us later. This is something that has always existed in our lives and it's not going away. You can't be here in this moment of, you know, spiked justice, civil justice moment in, in the history. And then, you know, once it's over, it's over. Um, and to me, they said, you know, posting on social media, we don't really care if you do that. It's more of um, in the classroom, like responding to things that you hear because you're an educator. So, and then I said, okay, well, how do we go about doing this then? How can we go about that? And they kind of like, I put like a step-to-step -step guide from what they said, but the first thing they said is in order to be an ally, we can't be defensive. White people can't be defensive. And if you have any defensiveness, it prevents you from truly being an ally. We have to stop taking it personally. And it's not really a, you're a bad thing. And, you know, we have to realize that a lot of this is unintentional, it's subconscious. And that a lot of the defensiveness from white people comes from just a misunderstanding of the terms used in the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I found some, um, part of this comes from a post that one of my people that I talked to shared with me, but this also came from talking to them. So like these terms are trigger words for white people, like white privilege, white supremacy, and or we're spoiled white rich people and we don't care. When I, when I talked to them though, they said the true definition of white supremacy and white privilege, and I like this definition a lot, is the notion that whiteness is the norm, the standard, and the ideal. And blackness is regarded as abnormal, substandard, and not ideal. And that definition allows me to not feel defensive at all because I can admit that in this country, really whiteness is the norm. It is kind of the standard. It is probably the ideal. Um, and so white supremacy or white privilege often go, goes unnoticed by those it benefits um, because we don't experience the oppression. We don't experience the subtle things that these black people do every single day. And so sometimes it's not our fault for being ignorant, but it's our fault for continuing to be ignorant. Um, so one of my, I have to share stories woven in this. Um, one, of my, one of my students, his name is Ron Shad, and he shared a story. Um, he's one of the, a great kid that I had. And one of my Huntington Prep kids, he played at App State. And now he's over in Russia trying to play professional ball. But he shared a story. Well, actually, it's part of my story. But I was in charge of Key Club at my school, which is the service club there. We didn't have beta club. We had Key Club. And I was in charge of that. He was a big, big um, student in the service club. And we all designed a shirt. And it ended up they all wanted to have a hoodie. They wanted them to be hoodies. So on the day that I took the orders, Ron Shaw came in my classroom and he's like, you know, I really want to get a shirt, but um, could you get me like a crew neck or something? And I was like, what do you have against hoodies? And he's like, nothing. But if I wear them, people are scared of me. And I, I was just like, oh my God. He was like, I haven't worn a hoodie. Mrs. Mullins, I haven't worn a hoodie since I moved to West Virginia. He's like, back in Detroit, I can wear a hoodie all day downtown. I'm with people that look like me, but I stepped foot in West Virginia and I clearly realized I cannot wear a hoodie. I get stairs. I get moms pulling their kids close to them. Um, and he said, so I threw out all my hoodies. And he said, and I, I started buying collared shirts and I get different. I'm like, it's easier. My life's easier now. And that just really struck me as 
an example of white privilege. Like my sons are never going to have to worry about wearing a hoodie. Like they're not going to look threatening in a hoodie. Um, they're, they're, you know, they're not, I don't ever have to worry about like wearing a hoodie. And, and this kid who, you know, he's just a kid. He's just like my sons, like can't wear a hoodie. So I thought that was a really good example of just a subtle story of how white privilege does exist. And while it sounds nasty or you might take it to mean like, oh, you know, it, it's just, it's just a fact. Like we, we don't have to be defensive. Um, another term that's obviously a trigger is racism. Um, a lot of times people associate this, like if you have any racist tendencies, you're, you hate black people, you feel negative towards them, you want to keep them subservient to you. It's some in intentional thing, but as Tim showed in his story, a lot of our racist um, tendencies, we don't even notice. Like he did some self-introspection uh, self and realized, hey, that I had that feeling and it wasn't right. But, you know, I have similar stories that I could... Um, share. And so when I talk to them about that, this is part of a Instagram post I'm sharing too, but I really like this. So I'm going to read this out loud. It says that this good non-racist people versus bad racist people, binary concept is a gross oversimplification of what racism is. Racism is often subconscious, undetected, and born out of privilege or apathy. Racism is not just in bad people's minds. It affects all people who belong to a racialized society. And so we are all born into this society and we didn't, I, I didn't choose to be white. You didn't choose to be black, whatever, but it is what it is. And we need to admit it and we need to acknowledge it. And one thing that someone that um, one of my friends said was put more effort into being anti-racist than trying to convince others that you're not racist. And that really struck me as well. Um, another thing that's a trigger is Black Lives Matter. Um, that can trigger, oh, you don't think all people matter. You think black people should matter more than white people. Um, it's really the only thing it's do doing is dividing us according to what I, who I talked to. Um, this was a quote from one of them. It's just spitting an us versus them mentality rather than in all of us versus racism mentality, which is what we really kind of want to strive for. Um, so the truth is, and this is from them, black, black people are not saying that all lives don't matter. All lives should matter. We want all lives to matter, but we don't feel like our lives are as valued as yours are right now. And when, when that can become equal, then it'll be all lives matter. Um, and then the last term that gets us kind of defensive is systemic racism. It, it can throw up a feeling of, oh, we're part of this evil, racist, corrupt country, and we are intentionally racist, or we knowingly are a part of this problem and like perpetuate it. Um, but this is a quote I'm going to read out because I think it really explains what systemic racism is. We're living in a society that was built upon slavery for the benefit of white people, and black people were slaves and white people owned them. And this is the foundation of our society. Of course, there's still racism in our country because it's our history. So, but we need to recognize that injustice and we need to recognize it didn't stop with our ancestors. It didn't stop when slavery was over. Um, and white people still benefit from this system that has marginalized black people. Um, and so it doesn't mean that we're bad people or at, or at fault. It's just an objective fact that we need to admit so we can like move forward. 
And so I thought that those terms that they went through with me and kind of like shared their perspective of what they meant really helped me put my walls down so I wasn't defensive anymore. And then they said, once your walls are down, step two is to just listen, learn, educate yourself, empathize, read, talk to black people. They said, don't get awkward. It's going to be awkward, but don't feel awkward. Like come to us and ask us questions. And every single person I reached out to thanked me and is still thanking me. They'll be like, thanks again for like, asking me those questions. And I'm like, oh my gosh, of course. Um, we can't be afraid to get uncomfortable. Um, because once we make those connections, then it's, we're all in it together. There's no more apathy. I can't be apathetic about this anymore because I love these people. You know, you don't, you want to make it your issue too, then you love someone and then suddenly you'll do anything to like help them. Um, so then once we put down our walls and we listen and learn and educate ourselves, the next step is really like admitting that these things exist and then speaking out and, and, and acting. Um, so there's a couple other stories I just wanted to share with you from my students and my friends and my colleagues um, that prove like that these things exist, even though like to me, I was like, what? Like systemic racism, like don't, you know, hasn't it gotten it so much better over the years? But here's a great story that paints systemic racism in a different light. One of my, one of my students, his name is, uh, was Ibby. His name is Ibby, and he uh, was a Huntington Prep student, and he was from Africa, though. So we had several students that were uh, were international. Some of them were from Canada, but we had them from all over. But several came from Africa, and he was from a tribe, and his dad was the head of the tribe, and he spoke, like, two words of English when I first met him. So I just talked to him now, and it was really cool because he's totally fluent. But um, he came here as a black, proud man just because he knew nothing else. There weren't, he was just surrounded by black people there and it was, it was what it was. And he said he came to the, this country in, in West Virginia and he did not understand why he was being treated differently. He just was like, why are people giving me these stares and why is everyone acting nervous around me and what's going on? And we had to teach him the history and slavery for him to understand what racism was. He said to me, quote, I never knew what racism was. It was not a thing in my life. I had to learn it. So he now, as a black man in America, has the same issues that people who are born black in America have just because he moved here. And he actually considered moving back to Africa just because his opportunities were better here for things, but his comfortability, how comfortable he was, was drastically lower. Um, he has an all white host family that has like raised him here and, and he pretty much is still with them. Um, and so I just thought that was really interesting. Um, so we do have to admit that that exists. Um, we do need to admit to our own racist um, tendencies or innate bias. The story that Tim told you shares that. I also had that uh, a similar bias, but it was towards my students. When I would have my Huntington Prep kids come, whenever they were from Africa, I was like, yes, it's going to be okay. They were the sweetest, most respectful kids. Whenever they were from America or Canada, I didn't know. Some of them were sweet, respectful. Some of them had a major chip on their shoulder, and it took a really long time to warm up to me. And I created a bias inside of like, well, geez, you know, why are you gonna act that way to me and all of this? Well, no wonder they have a chip on their shoulder. My Ibby, my student who's from Africa, has a little bit of that chip on his shoulder now just from living here for a few years now. Um, it's a product of what they're raised in. And so I, now that I understand that, it's like, man, I can't believe I ever was like, why are you acting that way? 
doesn't excuse them from being rude or anything like that. But again, my empathy and my understanding can go a long way, especially in education, I think so much. Um, admitting white privilege and supremacy exists. And the supremacy word I know is a big trigger for people. But again, just that notion that whiteness is preferred. One of my good girlfriends from high school, um, she's, she's uh, biracial, although she's very dark. So she said that even though she feels more white, she is treated more black, which I find interesting. But she asked, she said, if anyone asks you about white privilege or questions you that it exists, I want you to ask him this question. How many times have you wished you were black? And I was like, I never wished I was black. She said, because I can't, I can't tell you the amount of times I wished I was black in a situation because it would have made it so much easier. Not because I wanted to change my race or I'm not proud, but because it would have made it easier. She said, do you feel grateful you were born white? Do you feel kind of lucky? I was like, yeah. She's like, yeah. And so it's just that notion that one race is preferred or kind of superior over another, and it's just our historical background. Um, another story was from one of my students. His name's Levi. He's also biracial, but his story's super interesting. He was born from a white mom who got pregnant by a black guy and left her in West Virginia. He was raised by an all-white family. He never saw another black person, but he looks black. He's also seven feet tall. He was one of my Huntington preppers. And he looks black. He said to me, I am white. Like, I don't even know anything about the black culture. I look black, but like my mom's white, my grandmother's white. So he dates white girls. I just talked to him the other day and he said, I'm dating this girl now, Miss Mullins. And I drove up her holler, you know, cause they're in West Virginia too. They got hollers there too. And her dad came out of that house and he got up in my face and he like tried to pull me out of the car and was like, I want you to know one thing, son. And Levi said, what? And he said, I will never have a black son-in-law. That just happened to him last week. And he said, I want Mrs. Mullins, I wanted to tell him, but I'm not black. Like, and I shouldn't even have to say that. Like I, inside me, I'm white, but I look black. And so, and I thought, man, I wonder how many times someone has heard, you know, the opposite. Like I will never have a white son-in-law. And when these things happen to people you love, it just like kills you, it like hurts you. I just wanna cry, like he was like one of my kids and he's still going through this stuff. Um, and so those are just some of the stories I wanted to share with you. That's their voice, you know, I mean, um, and, and kind of what I learned from them and just like proof of these things existing and a way to think of them in a non-defensive manner. And then the last thing is just that we need to speak out when we hear racist remarks. And as teachers, we do hear things in the classroom. They're more subtle, you know, they're not usually as overt as we're thinking. Um, but I have an Instagram post that David really liked too, that I'm not gonna read, um, cause you guys can all read, but I'm gonna, maybe I'll, maybe we can forward that or attach that into the email, David, when we send the recording of this. But it's basically a really great. A lot of it I've paraphrased in here, but it's how to respond to um, things like, why do you make everything about race? Or I'm not responsible for what my ancestors did. Am I supposed to feel bad? Or you thought I said something racist. You just under misunderstood me. Or I don't see color. We're one human race. These things that like very well-meaning people might say, or maybe we've even said before. Um, and there's like a, a really nice response. 
and it helps me think through them too. Um, just a couple other notes. These are quotes from them. Don't get exhausted. They said, imagine the exhaustion black people feel from living this every single day. You can't get exhausted. We have to try to start seeing character over color. That was another quote. And we need to hold our country accountable for what it stands for, which is freedom, justice, and liberty.